from City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing here at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. So we'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing disparities, and a whole range of other issues. Now, today, we're going to discuss freedom of speech and expression with a particular effort on efforts to limit the kinds of books that are available, limits being placed on school curricula and, and related topics. Then we're going to look at the availability of other forms of artistic expression that we can experience to both educate ourselves and our children about those struggles and about broader issues of social justice. So a little bit of background before we go into the conversation. According to usnews.com, attempts to restrict access to books and library materials reached a 20-year high in the United States in 2022. And that's uh, per an article that cites recently released data from the American Library Association. So according to that data, in 2020, only 223 titles were challenged. But in 2022, that number increased tenfold to 2,571. In addition, there were nearly 700 attempts to restrict access to almost 2,000 different books, library materials, and services across the United States in the first eight months of 2023, according to the American Library Association. The ALA tracks attempts to ban book titles, both successful and unsuccessful, based on reports from library professionals and media coverage, but the organization expects that that its data reflects only a snapshot of book censorship, meaning that the true story is probably bigger and more pernicious than even these alarming statistics suggest. So challenges are made at the local level via petitions by private citizens for books to be removed from public, school, and academic library shelves, according to the organization. So far this year, 11 states have documented attempts to challenge more than 100 titles in their communities. The ALA notes that of titles challenged in 2023, so far, the vast majority of challenges were to books written by or about persons of color or a member of the LGBTQIA community. All 13 of the most challenged books in 2022 were challenged for allegedly alleged sexually explicit content, and more than half included claims of LGBTQIA plus content. The most challenged books in 2022 were Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kobabe, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, and The Bluest Eye by Nobel Prize winning novelist Toni Morrison. The 10 states with the most books challenged or banned at the local levels are Texas, Virginia, Florida, Tennessee, Idaho, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Missouri, North Carolina, and Connecticut. That last one kind of surprised me. Although the state of New York is not high on the list, there have been 33 attempts to restrict access to books with LGBTQIA plus content. So to discuss some of these challenges libraries are facing in this climate, And ways around them is Mario Ramirez, the Associate Dean and Chief Librarian at City College's Libraries. He's our first guest, and his task is to develop and lead the library's collection, which includes more than 1.44 million books, 50,000 periodicals, 1 million digital images, and 240 databases. As head of Special Collections and Archives at the California State University, Los Angeles, Ramirez's vision and leadership supported the equitable representation of immigrants, women, LGBTQIA plus communities, and communities of color in special collections and archives. He also served as project archivist. I almost said activist, but that kind of uh, those blend together sometimes. A little bit of both. He also served as project archivist 
for the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College for eight years. He's a graduate of UCLA, where he completed his PhD in the Department of Information Studies. His research focused on the documentation of human rights violations in El Salvador. As a postdoctoral fellow at Indiana University, Bloomington, where I was born, he developed a migration plan for the Archivo Mesoamericano, a collection of videos documenting the history, social movements, and culture of and indigenous languages of Mexico, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. Dr. Ramirez, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you so much, President. And so we're going to spend the first half of our show um, speaking with, with Dr. Ramirez, and we're going to bring in Savona Bailey McLean, and I'll talk about her a little bit more when we get to the second half of the show. So let me um, start off by acknowledging that your relatively recent um, addition to the City College community, we went years and years without having a, a permanent uh, head librarian, um, permanent not in the sense that you can never leave the job, but you are, you, are, <laughs> you are not an interim appointment. I haven't been threatened yet. You're the guy. <laughs> and, and so, so as the permanent head librarian sure. of City College, can you start by talking a little bit about your vision for the library, whether it's, whether it's CCNY specifically, or you know, as somebody who works in this field, you know, what's the role of libraries in our society today? Well, I think, you know, first of all, thank you so much for having me in the show, and um, thank you so much for bringing me to CCNY. It's been such a pleasure to be here, and I, I really love my job. When I tell people about it, they think I'm, you know, they keep wondering, like, you know, what's going on with me. They're a little bit worried about my moments because it was a lot to take on, but um, I really adore my job. I love City College, and I really adore my colleagues. I think they're all really fantastic people. So I just want to say that. Um, But I think, you know, uh, you know, let's stick specifically to the City College Libraries. I think, you know, it's sort of a vision that's evolving in many respects and a vision that I think really needs to be developed uh, collectively in many respects, both in terms of talking to my colleagues who work in the libraries, but also the students, the faculty, the administration, and really trying to determine, like, what is it that we want from the libraries? Obviously, there are certain national trends that are occurring with libraries in terms of making them much more a part of their campus communities in many ways and shifting the use of spaces in libraries and the focus of the work that librarians do in many ways outside of more sort of like um, what's been sort of traditionally perceived as being the purview of libraries. I, you know, in other words, sort of like a space where only books reside and mm-hmm. people are sort of um, helped, but in a way the space is, you know, the use of the space is secondary in many respects. You know, oftentimes it just focuses on the books themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly there are a lot of trends happening, but I think so in many ways I sort of adhere to that in the sense that I want our libraries to be really to be a part of the large, broader community, I think, rather than sort of being um, closed off in any sense or people having a, a sense that they're not very really welcome into those spaces, right? And that, and that means not only transforming the spaces, but also transforming the kind of services that we provide for the campus community and for the broader Harlem community in many ways, right? How do we bring people into the library as opposed to people feeling that they can't come into the library? And that can take on many manifestations. And I think that really is a collective vision that we all need to develop. Obviously, I have certain ideas that are informed by my own sort of past work in libraries and archives and why I came to libraries and archives in many ways. And those are very much sort of inculcated with social justice principles. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm very focused on collective work, you know, and collective decision making and empowering individuals, right, both with knowledge, but also through leadership in sort of the many ways that can manifest itself. Um, but I think, moreover, it really is a matter of like having a conversation with people on campus about what that looks like, right? Vis-a-vis forums, vis-a-vis surveys, and what have you. Um, you know, in order to really fulfill 
a better vision of what those libraries can mean for people and how can they be like a really sort of an agent of change in their lives in many ways, right? How that can be sort of a, a place of belonging in many ways on this campus since we are a commuter campus in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly also for the, the students that we serve on this population, which are people like myself, you know, finding a home for them and feeling welcome and feeling accepted in many ways, even if they're only here for a day, I think is really um, tantamount for the kind of work that we need to do on this campus. Mm-hmm. And you referenced your specific um, history as an archivist mm-hmm. and the work you've done. Right. One of the things that um, I mean, I'm uh, I'm, I'm asking because I know, sure. right? <laughs> that, you know, we we get approached all the time from artists, social actors, mm-hmm. community organizations in sure. Harlem that are you know deeply committed to preserving the history of their work of at course. a time when you know things evaporate very very quickly. At, and of course, we've got the Schomburg Center yes. right down the street. Um, but we have a role there too, and I wonder if you can think about your work in the library in relationship mm-hmm. to the college's sure. work in the community. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons that um, my candidacy was potentially attractive to you know the search committee and some of the people that I spoke to that was on campus was the fact that my background is specifically in community archives, and that's how I came into archival work. Um, I, you know, I always tell people that I got into archival work with, through pure serendipity. I, it was purely accidental. I have no background in history. Um, I was like focused on post-structuralist theory and visual culture during my um, my studies and psychoanalysis when I studied at the New School. And I have an MA in rhetoric, you know. And so there's nothing to that, you know. Nothing sort of that linked me to archives. I mean, I was a denizen of libraries since I was a child, and very much saw them as safe spaces in many ways. Um, and spent a lot of time reading, you know, and spending time in libraries, and that's where I felt safe and comfortable and sort of seen in many ways. Um, but, you know, oddly enough, I never worked in the library, <laughs> although many of my friends did yeah. um, throughout college or what have you. And um, but so I stumbled upon archival work, and but it was in a very specific context. Like a friend of mine, I was on the LAM from grad school um, because I was doing a PhD in rhetoric at UC Berkeley, and I took a leave of absence because I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue. And so I came back to New York and a friend of mine had just finished doing research at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. And she she got tired of me sort of like, you know, wandering around the house being depressed. And she's like, Mario, why don't you just like go volunteer at Centro and like have some purpose in your life? Um, so, <laughs> so, so I went. And, um, and, you know, initially I was just doing some database for them. I mean, this is like the late 90s. So technologically we were not that forward. But... Um, but it was like a marvel to me. And I think, you know, for me, a lot of the archival work, a lot of the questions that I was asking in my sort of more theoretical work about like, you know, what is history? Like, you know, who's written into history? How are these things constructed? You know, were certainly addressed in through archival work, right? And sort of the resuscitation and recapturing and sort of preservation of the histories of communities of color and specifically in this instance, the history of Puerto Rican communities, right? Mm-hmm. So th- suffice it to say that, you know, I come into this picture, right? You know, certainly as the chief librarian and associate dean, but also as someone who is recently, as like a few months ago, was working at the preservation of the histories of communities of color, right? And has always has been my sole focus for most of my career for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I, you know, I, not only do I say that that was appealing to the search committee, um, but I think moreover, given I think some of our conversations about you know the preservation of, the, of um, community histories in Harlem, you know, working sort of collaboratively with the Schomburg 
and then trying to find a way that there's a, we establish reciprocal relationships with Harlem, with Harlem-based communities where, you know, we, yes, we participate in their documentation and preservation, but we also give something back to them in some way, shape, or form, right? Mm-hmm. So that it's not just because, you know, uh, universities have histories of just sort of plundering people's holdings and then not really giving back to these communities. And I think a lot of the history of this institution in terms of it being embedded in Harlem and not being of Harlem in many ways up until the 1970s, you know, I think really speaks to the fact that that's also an ethos that or sort of a, a, a train of um, uh, an ethos that we need to sort of follow as well, mm-hmm. right? And I think as we sort of start, you know, initially these steps into um, working collaboratively with community partners or um, individuals in Harlem to preserve their materials, I think we need to keep that in mind as we move forward, right? Mm-hmm. Which thankfully we've already started doing. You know, but I think also we need to think about that as we move forward as well. You know, how do we practice that ethically in many ways? Mm-hmm. But then also I think, you know, if we're going to be doing that, then how are we then as an institution open to the Harlem community, right? Um, one of the challenges we had at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies is that as an independent institute and research center and library and archive, um, it was open to the general public, but then the security guards would always say, like, hey, you know, we don't know you. Or if they switch security guards, oftentimes they prove there were barriers to the community coming in, right? right? So how do we also, how do we not contribute to that barrier building, right? You know, and sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, if we're going to make the libraries blend more with the campus community, how do we blend it more with the Harlem community as well, mm-hmm. right? And I think that also is intrinsically tied to... Um, our role, if our increasing role as uh, uh, a repository for the history of Harlem. Mm-hmm. A couple of things you said, kind of in passing. I mean, those mm-hmm. of you listening, um, it, you know, we, we we do write some of these questions ahead of time. So, um, <laughs> um, and and they, they they're, they, they're quite extensive. They, <laughs> kind of, they, they kind of point to something I wanted to ask you about specifically, which is library as as protected space sure. and 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 there's really two kind of things that I that I, I wanted to say I mean the first is you read the life histories of social change agents mm-hmm. um, uh, the one my father taught me when I was a student in his class was uh, you know um, Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. writing about his story mm-hmm. and and it pivots on this moment when in Maryland he is taught to read mm-hmm. um, but you 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 hear time and time again of people who are in uncertain, unsafe places that the library, or, or maybe more generally, literacy and books provided the way forward. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you think about that as, as a librarian, either as our librarian <laughs> or as you know, like a, a member of the international brotherhood and sisterhood of people who guard <laughs> our knowledge in these places. It, I mean, it's, there's a kind of sacredness to the work that you do, right? There is in many respects, but I think also like you know we have to think like the distinction between the uh, I think we need to sort of think um, the distinction between like public libraries, which is really serve the role in which you are articulating, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the way in which public libraries, which I worked at NYPL at the beginning of my career as well, like, and, you know, and I think I mentioned earlier that for me, libraries were safe harbors as well. Uh, public libraries where you, all of those things happen, right? Like, you know, people get, you know, sort of you know, it's the first sort of stop for many immigrants, right? Like, so where people, I taught like Spanish language, like internet classes in the 90s, you know, um, to the Dominican community in Washington Heights, you know, so it's like really sort of a, a point 
where people go in many ways, where people tell them to go to the library. And in fact, actually, that public library, which was the Fort Washington branch on 179th Street, I think, um, you know, was also like a de facto, like, you know, um, teen center because mm-hmm. they had nowhere else to go. And so around 3 p.m., we were like, oh, my God, the teens are coming. And they were like, <laughs> right. you know, they'd be like yelling. They'd be like making, trying to get, like, you know, get, get a date with the person next to them and so on and so forth. And as much as it drove us crazy, it was also like the only place they could go and they felt safe after class, Mm -hmm. right, in the neighborhood. So I think that's really something, an important thing we need to point out. Certainly, university libraries have sort of been, you know, at the front of intellectual freedom in many ways. But, you know, I think in going back to what I was saying earlier, how do we then, how does that public library ethos, right, of being a part of the community, but also welcoming people in various capacities, right? Not just sort of to look at a book, obviously that's great, but also in, to get digital resources, but also like, well, what other kind of services can one provide for one in a library, mm-hmm. particularly, again, on a campus that is strictly, uh, strict, almost predominantly a computer campus, right? Mm-hmm. So like, how do we take that ethos and then transform the university library in that respect? Mm-hmm. So that it's not an off-putting, you know, center of... Um, of, you know, books or intellectual material, right, where, like, folks, you know, don't feel sort of welcome to come in or that they belong to, right, you know, and so I think how do we sort of transform that in many ways, and particularly here, right, given sort of the um, the mission of this particular institution, the student body of this particular institution. Yeah. So now I want to I want to turn a little bit more directly to the, the challenges to, to freedom sure. of expression in books, and I, I wonder if you can start by... You know, can you put the current spate of book banning in some kind of historical perspective? We had the numbers at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the ALA is talking about a tenfold increase of books sure. that have been challenged. How do you think about that in relationship to the history? And we have a, you know, we have a long history of of people trying to mm-hmm. shut down communities by shutting down what they can say or what they can learn or of what course. they can read. Mm-hmm. How do you think about the current moment that we're in? Oh, well, I mean, uh, first I will say I'm not a historian, so I don't know if I can give you the proper historical context. But for you are a librarian. <laughs> but I think you know, uh, you know, it, it's certainly you know, troubling in many respects. I think you know, like the current president of ALA, Emily Jabrinsky, has been attacked and doxxed in many ways on, online, and so there is you know anyone who's challenging or pushing back on sort of these various sort of mom groups or what have your individuals that are sort of perpetuating this kind of censorship and trying to shut down like um, a freedom of discourse in many ways, you know, I think are are running into real life threats in many ways. I mean, I think but but I think that's always been at at hand in many ways, right? Like book burnings, other kind of book banning, people trying to like keep people from knowledge, banning, you know, um, former slaves from reading, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's just a, a desire to shut down discourse and knowledge um, in, in a way to sort of corral and resist difference, right, be it racial difference, um, sexual orientation, or what have you, you know, I think, or a difference of opinion, I think there's always sort of a desire to really sort of, um, you know, speak in the U.S. context, to really sort of return to some sort of like... Um, very naive narrative of what the U.S. was, right? Which I think, you know, if you speak to anyone who lived in those times, like, you know, it wasn't particularly, like, 
uh, sort of um, uh, a wellspring of freedom for them in many ways, mm-hmm. right? And certainly, if you speak to anyone in the early American context, like what the U.S. was, you know, post the World War II was actually pretty horrible, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there was regime changes, there were dictatorships put in place, you know, in the Latin American, um, con- you know, um, context. And so, I think you know, there's this very sort of um, nostalgic desire to return to a U.S. that never really existed, right? Or existed for very select individuals, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that was somehow comfortable, quote-unquote comfortable, safe, and all those sorts of things, right? Yeah. Where they could sort of blissfully go along not having to know about people like me or some of the folks in this room, right? Mm-hmm. Or having to know what they thought about the United States or how they fit into the United States or don't fit into the United States and could blissfully ignore that and go on with their lives. And I think that just, it's, it's uh, you know, like in the 90s, it was like, we hate multiculturalism. And, you know, in the early aughts or late 90s, it was like political correctness. I mean, there's always a different label for this one to shut down the freedom of discourse and particularly shut silence the voices of women, queer people folks of color, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like constant and ongoing, right? And you know, it's, and it sort of manifests itself in different ways, and it sometimes has a slightly different face, but I think for most of us, particularly those of us who are of a certain age uh, who've been around for a while and seen this loop through various times, you're just like, okay, I know this, right? Yeah. I, I know what these people are doing and there's fear at the heart of it in many ways, right? Fear of difference, you know, it, there's an ignorance at the heart of it, you know, in many ways, because like, they don't they don't want to know about us, but they also don't want to inform themselves about us so that they continue, continue fearing us and also continue to be invested in a, an idea of the United States, you know, that, you know, that does not exist. Right? Yeah. And this no longer is not going to exist, right? And they're resisting it to let their dying breath mm-hmm. or go Trump. <laughs> you know, and there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of pernicious labeling of it. You know, Absolutely. It, it, that, that uh, you know, you think about you know what gives? I'll, I'll 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 say it the way it appears on the page. These kind of mothers groups, mm-hmm. the opportunity, the the not the opportunity, the right to mm-hmm. challenge a book, and it's it's this kind of invocation of a community standard. Absolutely. But most of the 20th century, the reason why federal legislation was necessary to desegregate schools to provide the Voting Rights Act is because you couldn't trust community standards. It. Mm-hmm. it and, and all of a sudden, through this kind of nostalgia for a mythological mm-hmm. right. paradise, right. that that becomes the podium that you stand on. To also reminds me about something you know you were saying in regards to um, you know some of those sort of challenges or discussions that have happened in free speech on this campus. Right? It's yeah. like it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Like knowing about the struggles of people of color or women makes me uncomfortable. Right. Like knowing about the lives of queer people and how crappy they can be sometimes, but also joyful makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Like all of these things, like this makes me uncomfortable. I want to shut it down. Right. And you know, and in and you know, in theory, freedom of expression, First Amendment means like we can say certain things and you know we do, we don't get shut down, right? But these people are actually trying to shut it down, yeah. right? And I think it's really a troubling trend that is in concert with a lot of the very sort of like authoritarian and I would say fascistic, you know, sort of tendencies of some of our politicians, but also some of like, you know, some of our fellow citizens, mm-hmm. right? And their desire to really sort of um, 
excise many of us from the American narrative. Mm-hmm. You know? And you know, it, it, you say these ideas make me f- uncomfortable, but that's actually not even what people say now. Now they say it makes me unsafe. Yeah, exactly. Which is a, which yeah. is which is a different level. Right. And you know, we went through a whole period of time when the enemies of freedom of speech were the defenders of the status quo. And so, if you were a civil rights activist, if you were against the the Vietnam War on the Berkeley campus, mm-hmm. that very soon became a free speech movement, mm-hmm. right? Now, the 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 enemies of of freedom of speech are often people that have settled into their ideas, both in progressive camps and in, in conservative mm-hmm. camps, and so there is this kind of mistrust that. Uh, you know, an engagement with ideas that make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're going to be uncomfortable. That's how we grow, and that's mm-hmm. how we get to the truth. It doesn't make you unsafe, right? I think also, you know, what I want to say, and this goes back to um, what we, our discussion earlier about you know documenting communities of color and documenting the Harlem community. Anyways, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's it's also like you know, many of us in this room have had to deal with not sort of seeing ourselves in mm-hmm. historical narratives, right, or any kind of narratives or in literature. Right, and we've been had had to contend with that for our lifetimes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and all of a sudden, when the tables are turned, <laughs> even in a very small, small fashion, where you're not the center of the narrative, right? You know, and and the the sort of the entitlement of that, <laughs> right? Like the sort of the fact that sort of the reaction and backlash comes to the fact that the realization that not only are you not part of the center of the narrative, no nor will you no longer be the center of the narrative. Our future is a future where you are not the center of the narrative and you have to accept that and people don't want to accept that because it lends them a certain entitlement, right? A certain right to certain things, a certain right to occupy space, a certain right to occupy history, right? right? In a way that they have not allowed the rest of us to occupy and that's, I think, that's what this is coming from. I totally agree. Um, I'm so grateful to have you on the show and in our library. Um, Joining the conversation I've been having with Dr. Ramirez now is Savona Bailey McLean. And uh, she's the executive director and chief curator of the West Harlem Arts Fund. I'm going to read a whole bunch of other things that she is as well. But what what we are is lucky to have her in the studio with us today. The West Harlem Art Fund was installed has installed public arts exhibits throughout New York City for the past 20-plus years in areas like Times Square, Dumbo, Soho, Governor's Island, and right here in Harlem. These exhibits include sculptures, drawings, performance, sound, and mixed media. They've been covered by the New York Times, Art Daily, Artnet, Los Angeles Times, The Huffington Post, and others. Savona is also the producer and host of State of the Arts NYC and Harlem Sculpture Gardens, um, which are video podcasts produced in partnership with Manhattan Neighborhood Network. She's a member of Art Table, Governor's Island Advisory Council, and NYC Sacred Places Advisory Board. And we're going to hear a whole lot more about what she thinks and what she does. But right now, I want to welcome Savona bailey McLean to From City of the World. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I um, first want to start by asking you to describe in more detail the work you do. There's a lot of it. It impacts us all. Um, and concentrate maybe on the West Harlem Art Fund, um, but I'll give a quick plug. I know the Arts Walk is coming up. I also know that a couple of City College sculptures 
are going to be integrated into that. And, and you know, we're we have a couple on display. We have at least one that we're digging out of the brambles. Uh, but we're really <laughs> excited to be part of the show. But can you tell us a little bit more about about that, and then the the work more broadly? Sure. So I started the West Harlem Art Fund 25 years ago, mm. and I had moved to Harlem. I have a, a long-term history with Harlem because of my grandmother. My grandmother came up from Charleston, South Carolina, all by herself. And she was sort of like our black Moses. Mm -hmm. So she came, left her children behind, her husband behind, came to New York, worked at the Hotel Edison, which still stands to this day Mm -hmm. in Times Square. And what year was that? It was somewhere after, you know, the beginning of World War II. And so she came in that second wave of that black migration. Mm -hmm. And she would send money home. And then she would bring relatives up, her children, others, one at a time to New York City. So I'm first generation born in New York City. And she always went to church in Harlem. Mm -hmm. She went to the Bronx because um, around the time of World War II, um, we're coming out of the Depression. Things were still not very good in the country. So a lot of blacks um, went past Harlem, went into the Bronx. But she always came to church. And that's how most of us ended up in Harlem every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Me, my sisters, my mother, my aunts, my uncles, we all followed my grandmother to St. Luke Amy Church, which also still stands on Amsterdam Avenue and 153rd Street. Mm. So I moved to Harlem and I was trying to convince friends to come with me to museums and galleries and they felt very intimidated. And I was quite shocked by that. I was like, why is everybody so intimidated? This doesn't make any sense. But I saw it was a real fear. And it it goes across race, gender. And so I thought, in my ignorance, that maybe if I were to help bring art in open public spaces, people would see it every day and would feel that art was beautiful and they could connect to it and it would be a good thing. I thought volunteering. Had no idea how complicated that was going to be and how that was going to change my life. And so um, I wish I was better prepared for that because it's, it's a very complex thing to do in New York City. It's, I hate to say this, but many of the groups that do present public art have lots of money, lots mm-hmm. of financial support from collectors and other um, civic organizations. And I started off with none of that. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, let me try to bring this about. And I did. It took me 10 years to present my first public art piece. But prior to that, Columbia University, I have to give them thanks, recognized me when they asked me by chance to do a pop-up exhibition. And for 10 years, I presented in Washington Heights on their medical campus in two buildings. And it was constant, and uh, it grew from there. So that's how I began it. Are you? I'm just. It just occurs. Are you an artist yourself, or are you? No, I am a true curator. I have a good eye, Mm -hmm. and I'm a good storyteller. I tell people that they'll tell they'll tell you as well. I'm a very good storyteller. Mm -hmm. I was a book person when I was a kid. I was a ferocious reader. And I did work in the library in college. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I was a ferocious reader. And so I read a lot. And so, therefore, um, I incorporate all of that in telling various narratives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you started off by talking about how 
people you knew felt intimidated as as consumers of art, as viewers of art. Um, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about censorship, but but one of them, and and Dr. Ramirez, you were talking about it earlier, is is the kind of systematic way that some artistic expressions are, get overlooked. Mm-hmm. And so, how how much has the effort to to rewrite that, to redress that, been a part of your curatorial mission? Really, my mission is to help people discover their voice. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just about artists, it's also about the public. And unfortunately, in America, as I mentioned earlier, most Americans are very intimidated by art. And they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid of, you know, not looking like they're smart. And so they don't know how to respond to it. I tell people, you want to develop your own eye. Mm-hmm. your own appreciation. There is no right. There is no wrong. But you can't get there if you're not engaged. And that goes for the artists as well. Many artists are not as engaged as you think they would. Art is expensive. Mm-hmm. And I deal with public art. And with public art, that's sculpture, that's installations. You need space to build. You need money to construct. You need to have the proper equipment You have to have um, other types of materials that you would not ordinarily use. That is expensive. So many artists don't engage because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And then if you add on that artists of color have that as an obstacle in addition to dealing with so many other things, trying to deal with the hurdles of getting permission and transportation and movement of art, you know, you don't see that many participating in it. So it's about developing the voice and trying to understand you can be heard. It's also dealing with another problem that has been increasing over the last 20 years, the monitoring, the micromanaging of people of color, mm-hmm. where they're not given the permission to do certain things, worrying that they may pose a danger if they engage in certain activities. That is a serious problem. Mm -hmm. So it scares people from wanting to try. And that's my goal, getting people to the point where they want to try. And then from there, worry about how to develop and build that narrative. Mm -hmm. Can you say, this is kind of the heart of it, really, this idea of an expansion of monitoring. And it's, 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 it's the same kind of community standards stuff, right? It's not, it's not always, it's not the FBI mm-hmm. as much now as it maybe was back in the day, but it's the lady with the cell phone. Mm-hmm. So, how 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 does that influence the way that you pursue pursue the work? And also, how much of that do you have to chip away at to get people into these spaces? Lots. Um, it's not so much censorship, but it is about the monitoring. So for Harlem Sculpture Gardens, we mm-hmm. renamed it to Harlem Sculpture Gardens. All summer long, I was planting with Brotherhood Sister Soul, mm-hmm. Exalt Youth, my assistants, uh, Street Corner Resources, the West 135th Street Tenants Association. We were cleaning, tilling, adding compost, planting daffodil bulbs on St. Nicholas Avenue. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there are 
very few gardens in St. Nicholas Park and Jackie Robinson Park, mm-hmm. predominantly black-brown neighborhoods. But in Morningside Park, which is a much more mixed neighborhood where there's more wealth around it, there are 34 gardens. Mm-hmm. Do you see the disparity? Sure. 34, 4, and 4. And there's a moratorium where you cannot plant any new gardens in city parks because they can't afford to maintain them. Mm-hmm. And so it was my assistant who made the statement that actually gave me this idea. He said, oh, you need an army just to deal with the mess that's here. And then I said, street trees. I think there's a street tree program. And I found out that there was. So you can't create a new garden, but you can around a street tree. Oh. And so, therefore, I started a street tree campaign. Around the trees you plant? On the avenue. Uh-huh. So, therefore, I couldn't, I didn't have to deal with that moratorium. Mm-hmm. But it still brought opposition mm-hmm. from people who were angry at me for wanting to take care of street trees on St. Nicholas Avenue. Mm-hmm. You have these volunteer groups that basically just pick up trash. And many of them are led by people who are not traditionally from the community. And so they feel that only people of color should do in their own neighborhood, in their own parks, is pick up trash. How inspiring is that? That's not inspiring at all. So I said, we're going to deal with stewardship. Mm-hmm. versus trash. Mm-hmm. Oh, that got me in a lot of trouble this summer because people got very angry with me. We had trainings. I have to thank Jason Stein at City Parks. He gave us trainings. He gave us tools. Mm-hmm. He gave us uh, materials that we could use. Staten Island helped us with plant materials. Um, the Daffodil Project with 800 bulbs. And we were able to deal with adding daffodils So, therefore, next year, when we say Harlem Sculpture Gardens, there would be some along St. Nicholas Avenue. But that caused a lot of problems because people had this image of what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Oh, you should be just picking up the trash. Mm -hmm. No, we were taking care of the trees. I have been able to, with the help of another assistant, identify every single tree along St. Nicholas Avenue from 127 to 141st, and from Bradhurst Avenue from 145th to 151st. We know every single tree, what type, how they grow, how to take care of them, what birds are in the park, which one populates all three. That's stewardship, not picking up trash. So, yes, it's about taking care of the land so that you can place the art. And I've always had to deal with that making sure that the environment was conducive so we could bring the art in it. Hmm. You remind me of this article that showed up in the New York Times like two days ago, and it asked the question, why are songbirds in rich neighborhoods but not in poor neighborhoods? And it comes down to this legacy of differential permission to do things like planting flowers and planting trees and having gardens and all of that. And, mm-hmm. it, and it cycles right through the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So that if you're, you know, if you're in you know, Marcus Garvey Park, you're probably not going to see warblers and Baltimore Orioles. You're going to see little brown birds that, that are, you know, eating popcorn on the sidewalk. Right. Yeah. Um, you're a warrior, right? <laughs> so I, 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 don't, I don't believe I even have to ask you how you respond to that kind of pressure. But you're also mobilizing a community that, that you just described as being 
tentative and afraid. And so as you come under that pressure, even with the, the daffodil bulb planting, you've got this army of, I assume, mainly younger people, but not It was younger, but also some seniors. And it's, it's difficult yeah. um, because even with the young people, they wanted to know why this was important to do. Mm-hmm. Because they think, shouldn't somebody be paid to do this? Mm-hmm. This generation of young people are very different. And I know we complain about them quite a bit. But I'm starting to understand, because I'm really listening to them. They come from blended families, mm-hmm. real blended families, and blended experiences. So they didn't grow up where they went to church functions or they had school productions and plays and musicals. They didn't have that where they understood the importance of continuing certain traditions and legacies. They don't understand that at all. Mm -hmm. So they want to know what's in it for them. Mm -hmm. What's the benefit for them? And you got to kind of deal with that challenge from them and convince them that it's for everybody, including them. I'm also learning that young people today prefer hands-on. Tell me more about that. Very much so. I teach every young person that works with me uh, how to garden. Mm -hmm. I'm a big gardener. I've taught them all. And they have learned, truly learned. It's like learning about composting, what it does, what it means, how to do it, how to plant bulbs, coming back, seeing things grow. They have learned all of that from me. They have learned how to go to farms. I take them to farms where they get to meet the animals, chickens and goats, and and understand how this all plays into this sort of ecosystem that we all need. I talk to them about the food that they eat, processed versus fresh. How do you you know, have a healthy body? How do you have a healthy soul? You need that versus the cheeseburgers and the pizzas that you eat all the time. It's about making it hands-on. Now to the point where if I make something and like I make muffins and pies and they just want to know when am I going to do another round of that uh-huh. because it's a sense of home too for them. But they want hands-on the pies, too. Well, that, too. But it's this having a sense of community because yeah. for many of them, they don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They really don't. So is that sense of community, is that the way in to art or is art the way into that sense of community? I think it's both uh-huh. because they do live blended lives. Uh-huh. Uh, that's young people. But even those who are older who have lost that sense of community, who knows what it is, but they don't feel it today. Mm -hmm. That, you know, they need to feel community. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that doesn't come about. It's about empowering. It's not about monitoring. It's not about putting people down. And this country has gotten too competitive. It's all about trying to take somebody down so that you can be on top, so you can pretend that you're better than everyone else. What you were talking about with the books and you talking about that, it really is about certain groups wanting to have an unfair advantage and keeping it that way. Mm -hmm. And trying to tear everybody else down so that they don't get that. So it's about restoring humanity, not about tearing it down. I'd like to ask you to put on your curator's hat now a little bit more and talk a little bit about 
you know, because you're not you're not doing this just to do it. You've got a you've clearly got a kind of public justice, social justice mission. So as you're looking at the art that grabs you as a curator, how do you think about that? What what grabs your attention? How how do you sort through the the possibilities? Well, New York City demands that public art be site specific. It okay. is a demand. And you have to you you it's up to you to figure out how you wish to build that narrative, but they want you to connect to either the geography of the area, the cultural history of the area, the demographic of the area, or anything else that people could identify with. So with that, they offer some latitude. I walk neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I walk it all the time, and I walk so that I can learn about a particular area, the people, the history. I do a lot of research. I get up all the time. I've turned into a history buff because there's so many layers when it comes to histories and these various narratives. So I'll walk it, and then I'll start to go talk to people Mm -hmm. in that neighborhood to ask them, tell me what's important for you when it comes to this neighborhood. Tell me who used to live here. And when I think about the artist, it's about who would offer something to that area. It doesn't have to be a perfect fit. Everyone does not have to like it. It's going to be temporary. So that means up to 11 months. But I try to make sure that people can at least get something out of that experience. That is important. That's what we're trying to do. And in the conversations that you have with various people, including artists, various perspectives will come up. So you learn new things and you can add additional layers or you can... um, strip away any misunderstandings that have been there too. So that's my process. A lot of walking and a lot of research. And then when it comes to the artwork itself, it has to be the quality of the artwork. I do not pick artists just because they are of color. I have represented all kinds of artists. Artists who are Latino, white, Asian. I just did my first Native American artist. Mm. He just installed last weekend. Mm. (laughs) I've been trying to do that for the longest time. Who who is that? His name is Dennis Red Moon Darkin. And he's blended African-American and Native American. And I've been trying to work with a Native American artist for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So I've represented all kinds of artists. I've also paired artists. I did a beautiful show this past spring with AHL Foundation. They asked me would I curate their spring show because I've worked with Asian artists before. It was a beautiful show. Mm -hmm. The Root of Color. And we blended two Afro-Caribbean artists with two Korean artists. Mm. And it was multidisciplinary. So we had digital, we had prints, we had paintings, we had sculpture out of paper. And it was beautiful. It was this conversation that we were having. And I'm saying at the root of all human beings is color. Mm -hmm. We're a rainbow. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. And uh, it was well-received. And it was displayed on 8th Avenue. And we had people that would just walk by just looking in because they're seeing something interesting going on. And we're welcoming people in. Mm -hmm. So I try to build these conversations, narratives, see the commonalities of it. And I have learned 
so much over the years. I've had people hunt me down just because they felt I was friendly enough that I could hear what they wanted to tell me. I had Asian artists hunt me down in the Lower East Side to teach me about Celadon. And now I love Celadon. What is Celadon? That's a ceramic in Asian cultures where they fire it clay and the porcelain has a hue of a very, very light blue to a dark green. Mm. And you could tell which country some of the Celadon came from, if it's Vietnam or if it's Japan or it's China, because the different traditions within that culture. And I've learned different other techniques from different artists. And then I may blend sound or dance to it so that we can enhance telling that story so that more people can feel a part of what is going on because that's the whole thing. We're supposed to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to fight each other all the time. We're supposed to get along and help each other and evolve as human beings. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put you on the spot right now because you talked about, I'm fascinated by this idea of you walking a neighborhood and talking to people to figure out what belongs there artistically. And um, what, what was the best or the most exciting or the most um, insightful uh, insight you got from one of those conversations? What Somebody said something to you that changed the way you thought about a place or the, or, or the relationship between art and a place? Well, it's a combination. One of, the, one, one of my favorite installations, and it was a small installation, but it was beautiful, was by a Japanese artist. And he picked the neighborhood, Jackson... Uh, Jackson Heights, Queens, because it was a predominantly Asian community. But we still walked it quite a bit. And he wanted to deal with the theme of Nirvana. Okay. And so his installation was called Sleeping Beauty with a Nirvana theme. Hmm. It was stunning. It weighed 600 pounds. And it was on a metal base that was flushed with the sculpture, which was ceramic, and it was Sleeping Beauty, but the head was of a sheep. And the hair, if you could have seen it, it looked like real hair, like he had braided it. Mm. It was absolutely beautiful. And we made it interactive, the base, with these Y bottles so that children could walk by and that they could touch it. And But it was this whole thing about Nirvana and combining it with a classic European story about Sleeping Beauty. And it was just this whole interpretation of it. Now, the sad part about it, it got damaged because people thought that it was two pieces versus uh, that were not connected, but it was connected. And on Thanksgiving weekend, this is several years ago, a group of guys tried to steal it. And when they realized just how heavy it was, it went, tipped over, and hit the ground. Mm. The artist thought that people were vandalizing it. I said, no, they were trying to steal it. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to steal it. But the point was, it was so beautiful. New York One picked us up within hours. Oh, wow. Hours. Mm. Said a masterpiece mm. is in Queens. And that's one of my favorite. That small, that small piece. Mm -hmm. Another great piece was what we did in Times Square. And that was Counting Sheep. You can uh, still find it online. Yeah, I remember that. And 
me, the artist, we fought a lot. <laughs> Q. And he ended up right and picking the location, 46th Street. And it was all about telling the story about how New York never sleeps. Mm. And it got picked up. We went viral globally. And we were being warned that, oh, for three days, you're going to get a lot of press, and then it's going to be finished. We were getting press five days after the three. Mayor Bloomberg gave us a shout-out. It was stunning. My whole life changed that week. It was frightening. But the whole point was it really caught with people. This whole thing about sheep, rural, being in the city, it's white, in the middle of Times Square with all that color that was there. And it it, it just was amazing. The artist said, Savannah, I didn't think we were going to get all this attention. I said, me too. I didn't know this was going to happen. That was quite an experience for us. So I want to get back to the beginning of this because we've been listening to you. The more you talk, the more passionate you are about these individual installations and the power of them and the wisdom of the artists and the fit with the community. I mean, this, that's brilliant and it's, it's powerful and it's brave. But you started by talking about the fear that people had mm-hmm. entering into that. And so th- these two pieces of the conversation, I want to know how, I want to know how it's going. It still is frightening for many yeah. people. Um, art is political. Mm-hmm. You're trying to challenge, perhaps, different narratives. You're trying to build people's confidence. And that's not easy mm-hmm. because you have people vested in not making that happen. Right. And then you have people who really just are ignorant and don't understand why it's important. Mm-hmm. So we're a small, tiny group. And it's been that way over the years, and it's hard to get the support that we need. But I am grateful that City College decided to join us for this exhibition because we're about to do something that has never been done in Harlem before. And the inspiration of this exhibition, Harlem Sculpture Gardens, is Augusta Savage because Augusta Savage was prominent during her time but died penniless and said that if she couldn't make it, she would help the next generation, Jacob Lawrence, Mm -hmm. Gwendolyn Knight, Charles Austin. She said, I would help to push it forward. And so part of my inspiration of this is her Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to push things forward too. We need to all do that so that we can become better human beings. Okay. So that's we're we're thrilled to be part of that and and you know one of the things that I discovered coming into this job and Mario you know this as you start to look at our archives there's a lot of art on this campus that's not out and and one of the things that we would like to do is get our get our art out. I'm gonna, we're 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 running out of time. I want to give you one chance to plug something that you want to plug to get remember folks this is about leaving your fear at home and getting out there and understanding that art is for you and you are for art but what should people be paying attention to next year may we're going to have harlem sculpture gardens and morningside saint nicholas and jackie robinson park as well as the city college campus yes thank you well Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to From City to the World. A special thanks to our guests, Dr. Mario Ramirez, who is 
the chief librarian at the City College of New York. And boy, are we glad to have him. And Savona Bailey McLean. And if you haven't been listening to to the show, then you missed knowing why. We're all glad to have her working on art in the in the in the neighborhood. She's the executive director and the chief curator of the West Harlem Art Fund. This show is produced by yours truly, Vince Boudreau and Angela Harden. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again.